Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast, the show where we take all of the latest news, gossip and events and we relay that back to you guys with a healthy bit of discussion and banter, of course, for your listening and viewing pleasure, depending on what platform you choose to follow us on. And of course, as always, my name is Adam Burns, one of your co-hosts for this series and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Courtney Pine. Courtney, sporting the West Ham jumper as always. How are you doing this afternoon? Are you okay? Yeah, hello everyone. Um, it's been a very busy time, um, particularly for Adam. I must say, have a look at the the Twitter. Adam's done a great job. He's done a great job keeping us updated for our testing. So please give our Twitter a follow. He's doing some great stuff on there. Absolutely, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, of course, this whole weekend, I've pretty much been sitting at home watching the Formula One testing from the first minute to the very, very last. And of course, live blogging it on the DNF1 official account on Twitter. For those of you that obviously weren't able to keep up with it, you were able to keep up with it with us. And it was a pleasure for everyone that joined in and engaged with us throughout that weekend. It was a pleasure to watch it and keep up to date and chat with you guys at the same time. But of course, the big topic of F1 testing. Now, we've only had the one test session this season, three days Seems like it went by in an absolute blur. It's not a lot of time at all. And of course, in this episode, Courtney and I are going to try to go through each of the teams, how they feel they would have done. Obviously, some notable moments of that. And of course, certain technical elements, not many, but a few technical things we'll discuss that are making the news. And of course, let's not forget the overall pecking order to try and make sense of who we think is going to be where coming up to the first race in Bahrain in two weeks' time. Now, first of all, Courtney, I watched the whole of testing from minute one to the last minute, but how about you? I know you weren't able to follow all of it, but you were able to keep in touch at key moments, I'm sure. Well, your Twitter certainly helped. Uh, didn't if <laughs> my Twitter, shall I say. 
Um, yeah, it was intriguing. I think the main thing I'm sure everyone can agree on is that Mercedes was scruffy. You know, like usually they usually set they usually set like a hundred over hundred laps every single day, use untold amounts of hard tires, and then they look strong going into the season. But they had a problem at the very start. We saw them lose the first time, first half of the day on Friday. And given our very little testing that we've had this year, these kind of things make a difference. And they seem to struggle with the handling of the car. Um, yes, yeah, certainly they've got time to turn it around. But I think the biggest headline coming out of this is that Mercedes may well find themselves in a position where they're not actually the top team going into 2021. Absolutely. And it's going to be such a hard one to try and figure out. And, you know, I've done my absolute best with the information that's been provided and stuff that I've had to go and find to try and figure out how close Red Bull Mercedes are. And if indeed Mercedes are still the number one team going into the season opening Bahrain. But of course, we'll get into that um, as the podcast goes on towards the end of it, probably where we give our predictions. But in general, you're absolutely right, Courtney. One of the biggest headlines coming out of preseason testing was Mercedes not being Mercedes-like in going mm. about their business, doing their programs, not being goaded by other teams into trying to set a headline a time to really put the cat amongst the pigeons, for lack of a way of putting it, and show everybody what the bar is for 2021. If anything, that was set by Red Bull quite emphatically on the Sunday. Now, um, you know, before we go into each of the teams, Red Bull pretty much uh, were the stars of testing. I don't think anyone can really deny them that they looked the real deal. Um, there were a few other teams, of course. McLaren had a very good test. Alpha Tauri looked very impressive. And there were a few teams that obviously didn't do so well. And perhaps we still don't really know where they are. Uh, for example, Ferrari, we, we really don't know where Ferrari are at this point in time. The, uh, one thing I think we can say is Ferrari probably don't look to be the best. They're certainly not the worst. They're somewhere in between. But as I said, we'll go through this and try and figure out who is going to be where, as everyone else will try and do and probably fail uh, by contrast. Um, so before we do get started, guys, of course, let's not forget um, the F1 world experienced a very, very sad loss. Very sad for us in particular as well. The loss of the great Murray Walker, one of the most, if not the most brilliant sporting commentators the world has ever seen and of course uh, to Murray's friends family and all those involved with him that are experiencing a sad loss at this time we do offer our condolences and our thoughts at DNF1 to Murray and uh, Courtney of course th let's spend the first few minutes talking about Murray Walker as a tribute to him um, first of all of course how big of a loss is this to the sport of Formula One and I suppose if you can sum it up what was Murray Walker to you as a fan? Like, how big of an influence was Murray in the sport? Because there are a lot of fans that watch Formula One or follow Formula One now that won't really know much about Murray Walker. But it, uh, for us, he was an icon, an inspiration from a broadcasting perspective growing up. Um, I'm glad you used the word icon. I personally, I feel that word is overused. Since everyone and everything's iconic these days. But the word icon suits that man perfectly. I think. In a way, is inspirational to me because uh, one of the reasons why we're doing this is that we want to sort of bridge the gap of Formula One to, shall we say, casual fans who just believe that the sport is boring. They don't really 
They don't really know the ins and outs that make it interesting for us. And, and Murray Walker had this enthusiasm that made the sport more attractive to casual fans. And he, he really, particularly in the 80s, he really helped the audience in the UK grow when it comes to Formula One. And in that sense, not only was he a legend of Formula One, he's also a legend of British broadcasting. Mm, absolutely. Um, I mean, for, for a little bit of background on Murray Walker is broadcasting career he was really focused on motorbike racing at first of all because his father raced motorbikes he was very much brought up around that uh motorbike scene uh, and he wanted to compete himself obviously you know as murray would say those that can race and those that can't talk about it and uh, that's a perfectly fitting way and, and a man that you know, he never really wanted to become a broadcaster at first. You know, he was taking his hand at motorcycle racing. He was in advertising. But of course, he got that really big break at BBC, um, you know, talking about motorbikes and talking about British touring cars. And then, of course, Formula One as well. And some legendary partnerships in commentary with Murray Walker, the likes of um, James Hunt, of course, the 1976 world champion. You know, the legendary team they were together. Um, so brilliant. And... The one thing I loved about Murray Walker, he was, he was the sort of person that you could literally stick him in the booth on his own. And he would talk oh, for yeah. hours and hours and hours about Formula One cars to the point where, hysterically, James and Murray would often have to share a microphone and pass it between the two of them just so they wouldn't interrupt each other and talk over one another. It was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we could do with that sometimes, Adam. Just have the one <laughs> mic because we we have so much to say. But I think I think it's safe to say we'll never get to the level that uh, that pairing did. You know, I sometimes mm. see people criticise one or two of the commentators, particularly on the on the Sky Sports end. I don't know. I think I think it's sometimes difficult for these guys to live up to the sort of um, level that these guys set. Because honestly, if you if you don't know about Murray Walker, you've seen a lot on the news. Please look up the, the man's career and what he offered Formula One because it was simply exceptional. Absolutely. And of course, he went on to have that brilliant partnership with Martin Brundle uh, on the BBC ITV uh, for so many years. And that was that was the team that I grew up remembering commentary, uh, Murray and Martin. I think my earliest memories of Murray on commentary was, I think, the Canadian Grand Prix back in 1995, where Michael Schumacher in the Benetton was dominating the championship early days with Damon Hill and the two Ferraris of Jean Alessi and Gerhard Berger in close company. And it was a race where about 10 laps from the end, Schumacher had problems with a Benetton, retired from the race, and Jean Alessi won his one and only race for Ferrari. Um, and, and the commentary on it was absolutely fantastic, the way that Murray just used to talk as if he was an expert on the sport, but at the same time was also from a fan's perspective. Those sorts of sayings he had, those Murrayisms that we'd known to grow in love. I mean, I'll relay a few of them. As I made a list of some of the great, the, my favourite ones is, um, I, I, and this is the thing we loved about Murray is the fact that he could say phrases that were absolutely amazingly crazy and sometimes wrong, and yet he was loved so much by the F1 world that um, he could say the wrong things and everyone would love him more for it. That's how good Murray Walker was as a commentator. A few of his quotes, I'll read them out for you. Um, first, one of my favourites: "The lead car is unique, except for the one behind it, which is identical." Um, I don't make mistakes. I make prophecies which immediately turn out to be wrong. Um, there's nothing wrong with the car except for the fact that it's on fire. I mean, <laughs> it's silly stuff like that. I definitely, and and it, it just, 
stuff like that it just makes you fall in love with someone like Murray Walker because you know genuinely you know on commentary I've had a go at it myself and you really do have to do a lot of prep and you really have to think of stuff on the spot and you take notes of what some people do like for example um I very much enjoy the Sky F1 commentary you know I think David Cross is an excellent commentator Alex Jakes is absolutely fantastic yeah um on commentary I really really love what he does and and a few other in particular I mean Ben Edwards of course for Formula E as well you know does a really good job and it's such a underrated arts and I think Murray Walker kind of brought it to life he could turn the most boring race into an absolute pantomime fest and he you know sometimes people would just watch races just to hear Murray and it's going to be such a sad I mean it, it is it a loss I, I think Damon Hill said it's not really a loss to the sport um, you know, because of how fondly we remember Murray and how much that he's given to us that through his memory, we'll never really lose Murray Walker in that way. And, yeah, and it's associated with an era. It's associated with an era of Formula 1 that no one can take that away. Yeah, I, I mean, I think my favourite quote that I heard someone mention on social media after Murray's passing was, uh, and it's absolutely beautiful, and I apologise if this person that wrote it, I can't remember who it was, and if I'm misphrase it I do apologize but he basically said I remember watching Murray in the uh, commentate in the 70s on racing and it was in black on a black and white tv and through his commentary and through this the way he'd present and broadcast it brought so much color to the race itself it was absolutely incredible and I thought that was such a beautiful thing to say and it really sums up Murray Walker anyone that knew and loved Murray Walker he was an absolute brilliant icon to the sport and there's not enough superlatives to describe Murray so you know, I'm absolutely going to miss him. And hopefully, um, there'll never be another Murray Walker, but he's definitely an inspiration for those of us in broadcasting and wanting to talk about the sport that we love and talk about our passion. There's, that is the standard right there. A man that basically just could not stop talking about the sport that he loved. And, you know, that's absolutely amazing. So rest in peace, Murray. We'll absolutely miss you. And, um, you know, let's move on for the rest of this episode because you sort of get a bit choked up thinking about it. Um, in the same way that Murray said in 96 when Damon Hill won the world championship that he's got to stop because he has a lump in his throat. And uh, I certainly understand that feeling at this time. But of course, guys, let's get into the testing. And um, let's, you know, first things first, Courtney, let's talk about uh, Mercedes since we were so... Um, Expecting Mercedes to show their hand, show their pace, show their car to its full, including the floor, which they've been so discreet about. And you're absolutely right to point out, Courtney, with Mercedes, that it was anything but the Mercedes that we come to know and expect. Yeah, I mean, as we've already stated, they're usually almost bulletproof. They might have the odd issue here and there, which comes with every, any testing session, but... I don't know, they just seem to be almost like a completely different team. You used to see Mercedes right at the top of the uh, of the laps counted uh, chart, but they're at the very bottom. Mm. Um, it seemed that Lewis seemed to struggle a little bit more compared to Valtteri. Valtteri seemed to be happier with how they got on. Um, they, the likes of Toto, Wolf, and the drivers themselves seem to have a level of optimism. They can turn it around, but for once, it has to be said, Mercedes are the ones that are playing catch-up for once. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think with Mercedes, a team that's so used to having everything run smoothly, and if there are issues, they they more often than not, you know, manage to sort it out. I think there was a quote from the trackside engineering director, uh, Andrew Shovlin. I think I've got it here. Um, so 
I'll read it off from what I've got on my phone. He basically said that regarding the W12, he believes that it's slower than the Red Bull on race pace. So he's categorically Mm -hmm. denied this idea that Mercedes are still quicker than Red Bull and slower than other cars than qualifying pace. I don't know if that's true um, personally in terms of the, especially the latter, but he goes on to say, Uh, that they've made a bit of progress with the balance on the higher fuel and the car was more predictable. But from what we can see from the data we've collected over the last few days, that on race pace, we're not as quick as Red Bull. He then goes on to say the lower fuel work was a more confusing picture. We didn't gain enough and we need to go and look at our approach as far too many cars were ahead of us on pace today. We've had issues in recent years with pace in winter testing and managed to make good progress before the first race. But this season, we may have a work cut out this time. Now, Mercedes, better than anyone else in any sport in the world, play themselves down as the underdogs. And Mercedes have been legendary for that, almost as legendary as they've been successful. And, you know, a a lot of the time, especially in recent years when Mercedes have dominated and Lewis Hamilton has been incredibly brilliant and consistent, they've always tried to play themselves down and say, we're not as good as you think we are, and then go and blow away the competition. Based on those comments and from what we've seen, Courtney, do you believe them in that this could be the first time in the turbo hybrid era where Mercedes may not be the team to beat? It's certainly a possibility. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they are closer in Bahrain than they were in testing. But could they be close enough to Red Bull that they're going to give us the battle that the fans have been sort of hoping for the last sort of three or four years because let's be honest they've had it way too easy um certainly Max Verstappen seemed very happy with how um, Red Bull were getting on um I don't know I don't, I don't know I, going into Bahrain it wouldn't surprise me if it was Red Bull 1-2 hmm. but given the history of Mercedes sometimes we've seen it even from like a Friday practice session they'll seem to be a bit sluggish and then come the race they're the team to beat again so Definitely a very um, busy couple of weeks coming up for Mercedes, but right now I, I think I think the first race is um, Red Bulls to lose. To be honest, you know, could well be. Um, I mean, Bahrain is a very unique circuit in terms of its characteristics, and you know the reason why testing usually happens in Barcelona is because it's just corners. No one really needs to test the straight line speed efficiency or the power of the engines in particular to know if a car's fast. They can do that in the factories on the dyno runs. They don't need to really put it in the car to find out. But how the car handles and how it behaves in certain circumstances and the airflow and everything else that they need to correlate to the uh, the wind tunnel runs, that's where you test your cars on a track like Barcelona. Bahrain does offer certain challenges like that where you can get a decent level of testing on a car. I mean... Um, a 2009 I think was the last time we did a proper test session in Bahrain like this and that was when Braun GP found to be three quarters of a, of a second faster than everybody else and they couldn't believe it nobody could believe it and then it obviously translated that they were that good um, so you know not to downplay the significance of the Bahrain test on the circuit but that's why we normally go to Barcelona not necessarily because of the weather because that's not the best place to go for hot warm climates that we normally expect to see uh, during the Grand Prix season but you know, with Mercedes, they didn't look themselves. They had issues on the first day where they had the issue with the gearbox, which they lost about three hours worth of running. As you said, Courtney, they recorded the lowest number of laps of anybody in the test session. They did about 304. And I think the leading team, if I'm right, I've got the numbers here, actually. I think just scrolling through. I've made so many notes on this that I've done, so bear with me. Um, 
Yeah, Alpha Tauri and Alfa Romeo did the most with 422 each, and Mercedes did 304. So already those two teams did more than 25% more running than Mercedes. And that's a huge amount of time of running, given that you're only allowed three days of about eight hours worth of running per day. So from that alone, if my maths is in order, Mercedes effectively did six hours worth of running less. If you think of everyone running for 24 hours, they did six hours less of worth of running than the uh, leading teams in Alpha and Alpha May. And that's huge in this, in this, um, you know, under these circumstances. Um, you were mentioning Lewis Hamilton was having issues with the car. Um, yeah, obviously he had issues when it when it was his turn to run with a gearbox issue. And then when he had a good morning on the second day, things seemed to be a bit more characteristically import, uh, better for Mercedes. He then had that off where he beached the car on the exit of turn 13, I believe it was, turn 14, which brought the red flag out. He didn't ultimately lose that much time in terms of the overall running. And then obviously on day three, he did some quicker runs, but he was still spinning the car and losing the rear end. Yeah. The car itself seems to have a lot of rear balance issues. And again, a lot of it could be driven by the changes to the floor and what's been lost and what Mercedes have tried to recover. But there is a sense that right now the champ does not feel very confident with the W12 right now. Do you feel that in the two weeks before the start of the season that Lewis can get on top of that? Because Valtteri was struggling too, but nowhere near as much as Lewis was. Yeah, see, that's what I noticed. I think Valtteri's more confident that Mercedes can turn it around compared to Lewis. Like, there's no doubt in how much faith Lewis has in the team, obviously given what they've done in the last few years. But maybe, may, maybe Mercedes are trying to hype up this championship. Who knows? Because there has been a lot of talk about how boring Formula One has become, has become because of their dominance. So may, maybe there's a little bit of that going on. I think I think the word sandbagging has been thrown around more than ever. Because um, I think with the Mercedes and the Ferrari power, we will not be seeing that until Q3 um, in, the, in the first race. So who knows? Maybe, maybe Mercedes are playing mind games, but given what we saw, if, if they are playing mind games to the level that people are saying they are, then they need to be they need to be going into acting because they're certainly doing a great job because they look scruffy. I, I, there were various mistakes going on and overall, it just didn't look good for them. Mm, no, you're right. And... Um... It's funny that I remember on the first afternoon where we had the massive sandstorm and the high winds and everyone was making the same joke that Mercedes have deployed their sandbags already um, and it's covered the circuit as you do. And it behaved like a wet track. It was really quite interesting to see. And then towards the end, everyone was getting on top of it. So crazy conditions there. Um, let's move on to Red Bull. Just keep in mind of time as well. Um, so we went from one team that was having problems left, right and centre to the team that practically had... Probably the, you know, maybe not the best test value for money, but a team that pretty much didn't have any major problems at all in Red Bull. Um, Red Bull set the fastest time of the test in Max Verstappen, a 128.960 on the C4 tyres, which coincidentally was actually faster than the uh, practice times in free practice last season. So given that, you know, last season, the cars, and this was late last season as well, so the cars would have been very far developed. They're already proven to be at least just as quick as they were last season, given the fact that we've had this downforce and beefier tyres as well. So they're not as quick as the other ones were. So very impressive stuff from everybody in general, especially at Red Bull. Um, Max Verstappen looked very, very comfortable in the car. Sergio Perez as well looked very, very good, although he needed a bit more time with certain things, which is understandable. But he looked pretty happy. All the right noises from Red Bull. 
suggesting that they believe they've got a very, very strong car and certain weaknesses that they had, especially at the rear end with the rear balance where the car was very loose at the rear, other than a few odd sketchy moments, uh, they seem to be very much on top of that. And the rear of the car seems to be handling very nicely, Courtney. Well, they need to do this because over this um, turbo hybrid era, Red Bull have been relatively far behind, but Mercedes in particular at the start, and only towards the end of the season do we see them catching up and winning the odd race here and there. So in order for them to challenge to win a championship, this is what they need to do. And at this point, it's looking really good for them. And not only that, they have a, a solid second driver in Sergio Perez that could be picking up points for them where previously they might have failed to do so. So again, at this point, it's certainly looking rosy for Red Bull. Absolutely. And Max in particular looked very, very good. On Sunday in particular, I think that's kind of, I had reservations about how good this pace is relative to everyone else at Red Bull. Are they the real deal? On Sunday, they looked absolutely mighty and mega. Mm. Uh, and in Max's hands, it looked like it was in another league to anything else that we'd seen on the track. And he was just putting in fastest lap after fastest lap. Again, I'd love to see what Max could have done on the fastest tyres in the right conditions in the evening on low fuel. I don't think there's any team that really did a proper low run fuel, perhaps with the exception of Haas, just for the benefit of their drivers and what they're doing. But we'll get to them eventually. But Red Bull looked very, very good and no real major issues at all. So they look very happy right now. Um Let's move on to the team that I think impressed me the most in testing, and that was McLaren. And Oh, great. Fully agreed. Now, McLaren, their fastest time was 1 minute 30.1, and that was by Daniel Ricciardo on the C3, uh, C4 tyres, I should say. Um, McLaren didn't do a massive amount of laps. They only did 327, so only about 23 more than Mercedes. But what impressed me about McLaren is they got through their programme so quickly of what they wanted to test on the car. The car itself looked very, very good. There was a concern that because they were limited in what they could do based on the fact that they were using their token system to accommodate for the new Mercedes engine, there was a fear that they may not be able to make the most of the new regulations because of that. But if anything, it was quite the opposite with McLaren. They looked very quick from the get-go. They looked quick all weekend. They didn't really have any major issues. Both drivers, Daniel Ricciardo especially, looked very happy with the car. Um, as I said on Twitter, Courtney, I, I strongly believe McLaren are definitely going to be up there. And I think they look the strongest team in the, in the midfield class if they are going to be in that. But what would you say about McLaren's test, Courtney? Because they said they went through their program quite well. And does that mean that they had a brilliant test? Or do you feel perhaps they weren't asking enough questions of their car? What, what do you make of McLaren's test as a whole? I think I will think... Um... For the McLaren fans, it's certainly an exciting time. I mean, they seem to have found a loophole in the um, in the diffuser. Sorry, in the diffuser, mm. um, which is obviously around that, that area of the car is a big deal with these regulation changes and with the Mercedes engine and another strong driver partnership. We we discussed the positive snowball effect of McLaren after the reveal and the testing the results from testing have even like added fuel to the fire in that sense. So if, yeah, for, for McLaren fans, I think certainly, I think they should be looking at being the top three side, particularly at the beginning of the season. And in a scruffy race, you know, we saw some uh, last season in a, in a rainy race, in an incident field race, this car could be strong enough to win races. Absolutely. And you know, 
Ricardo was in this position at Red Bull, the team that always there to pick up the pieces when Mercedes struggled. McLaren could well be this team. And with the experience that Dan Ricciardo has, they are certainly in position to win races. They, they could win several races at least. It wouldn't surprise them in the slightest. Mm. Uh, the car looked very, very good. Um, I think throughout the whole weekend, even when everyone else was up in their pace, McLaren had plenty to respond with. Um, it, it obviously, you know, one point, just under 1.2 seconds off of Max Verstappen's time on the same tyre. But I don't believe for a second that on ultimate pace, McLaren are 1.2 seconds off the Red Bull. I think they're a lot, lot closer than that. And as I said, from what we've seen with the new Mercedes engine, you mentioned the diffuser. Um, I'll talk about that briefly. Um, I don't want to get too techy into this. Um, but what they've done with the diffuser, where the loophole has been found, that a lot of teams have realised and probably thought this is brilliant, is that they've trimmed down the rakes uh, the uh, or the fins, if you like, however you want to call them, at the bottom of the diffuser, but I think about 80 millimetres, something like that. They've cut them down and this is to reduce downforce and the suction on the car to ease the burden of the load on the tyres so that they don't wear out as much or they're not, you know, we don't want to end up with more situations like what happened with Lewis at Silverstone last season. Uh, and given the rate that these cars are developed, it could happen more often than it has. And what McLaren have done is everyone else has been putting their rakes down in a straight line as they normally would be. But McLaren have started at a certain amount and then put it down at an angle where it turns in yeah. on itself about about, I don't know, 20, 30 degrees. I don't know the actual numbers, um, anti-clockwise. And what it means is the rakes are actually longer, but because they're at an angle, they turn out to be at the similar sort of height as they would be uh, with the straight ones, even though they're actually longer. So, or in terms of contact to the ground, they're the same um, distance from the ground as the other side, even though they're at an angle. And what this does is, long story short, it creates that extra vertical suction with the vortices to pull it towards the ground, give it more downforce at the rear, a more stable car that can get on the power early, and it just gives so much more performance. Now, diffusers at the rear, there's been so much development on them over the years. They've been the talking point, as I mentioned, in 2009 with Red Bull. Um, I remember Toyota had the triple diffuser and the double diffuser and everything else. They were crazy back then. Uh, Red Bull, of course, themselves in uh, 2013, well, the early 2010s to 2014, had famous cars with a special diffuser. Sebastian Vettel used to love those and the blown exhausts. They're sort of making a comeback again. And McLaren seems to be the team that have made the innovation of anybody and this is not something that they would have used tokens on of course this is a non-token spend part that they would have used and of course with the regulations that's why so a very very brilliant piece of uh, design work from James Key at McLaren and this could prove to be a real game changer because this season in particular Courtney teams cannot really afford to spend too much time developing on the 2021 cars unless there's a tangible benefit at the detriment of the 2022 car um given from what we've seen from McLaren um, I'm going to ask you, do you feel that they could, at the very least, keep their place at the top of the midfield? I think still, I think Ferrari is still a bit of a unknown. I think Ferrari are the main team to keep an eye on. Um, a couple of other teams seem to be cautiously optimistic, despite their testing regime suggesting otherwise. So we won't truly know until the first race. But I say out of the midfield teams, or all the other teams apart from um, Mercedes and Red Bull, McLaren certainly looked the strongest and I think there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic about this season. Absolutely. Um, I would agree with you on that one. But of course, we're not going to reel too much because we've got our list towards at the end. Um, let's go to Aston Martin. Now, Aston Martin, we went from the team that's had probably the best test to now the team that 
arguably has had the worst, if you think about it. Um, Aston Martin did 314 laps. The only team that did less than them was Mercedes themselves. Their best time was a 130.4 by Lance Stroll on day two, using the C5 softest tyres. Now, Aston Martin were plagued with so many issues with the car. They had gearbox issues similar to Mercedes, had hydraulic issues, they had issues, uh, you know, so many different issues with the car. And it really impacted Sebastian Vettel more than anyone else. So I think he only did 100 or so laps. He did the fewest laps of any individual driver. Whilst there's still a lot of unknowns from Aston Martin, there is some data that we can take to sort of get a rough idea of where we feel they will be. I don't think by the fact they had the worst test that they will be at the back of the field. That we know. Um, But with Sebastian Vettel in a brand new team, new people, a new car, a new engine, all of the stuff that he has to get used to, how crucial was this test for him and how big of an impact will it be that he did the fewest running of anybody in the field? And of the running he did, nothing really significant in terms of what he will be used to on a race weekend. Um, I'm in kind of two minds about this situation with Vettel and Aston Martin. I think on a negative perspective, of course, it's damaging, particularly when you join a new team. You want to be making an instant impact. Um, so it's far from ideal. But the concept of this car should suit Sebastian Vettel's driving style much more compared to his time at Ferrari. Um, he has years of experience behind him. So with this combination, it might take a little bit of time but I do believe as we get into the first few races, I think we could start seeing the Sebastian Vettel of old. And that is what Aston Martin need right now. Yeah. And, you know, in Lance Stroll's case, Lance Stroll did a bit lot more running than Seb did. He did uh, the other 200 or so laps. So he had a relatively decent test. He had, he had the car when the car was actually working relatively okay. Yeah. So, most of what we're going to learn about Aston Martin from testing will be based on what Lance Stroll has done rather than what Vettel has done, which might serve in their favour because I think if we're talking talent-wise, under the right circumstances, Vettel will get more out of the car than Stroll will. But having said that, I think we'll still get a decent barometer of where the car is in Lance Stroll's hands as well. So Aston Martin will have a lot that they will need to do to get this right for Bahrain. And like Mercedes, we probably expect them to get on top of things, but it will be very difficult for them if they can't get on top of their problems that they're facing at the moment. I think we can all agree the car looks amazing. I think on track, it looks fantastic. It looks um, better. I, I, take back, I yeah. take back some of the things I said about that car. It I looks st- better on track. I still think the livery looks better for the, on the Alpine, mm. but I think if you were to take the livery and the design of the car, the aesthetics of the car, then the Aston Martin looks gorgeous. Um, and you don't really notice the pink too much on there when it goes around the track. No. So, um, yeah. Well, I think I will say on the pink note, Sebastian Vettel uh, has now agreed a partnership with BWT to work with their foundation. Of course, it's all for good cause, not necessary for our own personal gain. He's got a brand new helmet, a, cr- a crash helmet, a pink one. Now, I don't want to sound like an old grumpy old man here, but even though it's all for a good cause... It has kind of ruined my favourite crash helmet on the grid, the else, the white Sebastian Vettel helmet with the German flag going down. I thought that was absolutely beautiful. Um, Seb was always known for changing his helmet every five minutes, and but that one he had at Ferrari was absolutely fantastic. So I'm going to miss that, but it's always for a good cause, so that's always a good enough reason to change a crash helmet. Um, this, I mean, let's move on to the next team now. A team that surprised a lot of people for the good reasons, and I think may prove to be better than anyone expected, and that's Alpha Tauri. Now, 
we spoke about Alpha Tauri on the episode with the car launch, and I was quite intrigued by what they were doing with this car because this was the car that decided not to go ahead and use the 2020 Red Bull parts at the rear of the car and decided to stick with the 2019 rear structure. Focus mainly on the front, an area that not many teams bothered with this season. They didn't bother with the front. They wanted to improve the rear and use their tokens there. Alpha Tauri went a different way. And from what we can see, Corny, it looks like it's actually done really, really well. I mean, 422 laps. Them and Alfa Romeo did more than anybody else. Um, the best time was the 129.053, the second fastest of anyone, and done by Yuki Tsunoda. And we'll talk about it, him a little bit more because he was the star of testing, Yuki Tsunoda. I mean, Pierre Gasly was good, but Tsunoda was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely loved watching him go around in that Alpha Tauri. How confident will Alpha Tauri be going into this season after the test? Do you think they're surprised by the performance of this car, or do you feel that? you know, that they've been smart about the direction they've gone and it's paid off for them a lot more than people were expecting. Oh, there's certainly been one of the surprises of testing. And as a Formula One fan, you want to be seeing as many of these surprises as possible. I think as a couple of guys talking about Formula One, it's pretty boring when it's predictable. So I think this test has actually thrown up way more surprises than we ever like, ever thought. Mm. But yeah, certainly, there's there's certainly doing a lot better than we thought. Um, I don't know. With that midfield, it's so tight, and I do expect some of the teams around them to be a lot better come to um, the first race. But yeah, certainly at this point, at this point in particular, they will probably be in the upper end of the midfield. We won't know until Bahrain itself. But yeah, I mean, going back to the drivers, um, very impressed with Yuki Tsunoda in particular, has to be said. Yeah, I mean, Yuki was going around pounding laps around the track and he was pretty much trading fastest lap times with uh, Max Verstappen and on the occasion Kimi Raikkonen as well. So yeah, Yuki looked very, very quick. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what this young lad can do because from what I've heard, he's a very nice guy one of the friendliest people that you'll see in the paddock. I mean, we say that a lot about drivers, but this kid really is really nice like that. Very excited as well about this opportunity. He's the sort of person that it hasn't really sunk in yet to him that he's a Formula One driver. And he's just like a kid at a go-kart track, that kind of vibe really. And I love to hear that with drivers. I mean, I feel like that's what I would like to be like if I was a Formula One driver, just excited to get in the car and do that. Um, but equally, Yuki is very, very quick. One of the leading protagonists from F2 last season. And in my opinion... I think if there was a bit more time, I think Yuki might have been able to overhaul Mick Schumacher and Callum Eilert. He's definitely on that level. And we're going to be able to see a lot more of him than we will of Mick this season, performance-wise. And I think he's going to he's going to surprise a lot of people. I think this kid is definitely the real deal in terms of performance. I think he's very, very good. And I'm looking forward to see what he can do. Uh, Pierre Gasly, again, going about his business, seems to be growing in maturity and strength over time. And so that's always a good thing. And uh, I look forward to see what he can do this season. Really excited by Alpha Tower this season. I think they're going to do very, very well. Um, now, let's move on to the team that I think nobody really knows. Maybe they don't even know where they're going to be in this pecking order. And that is Ferrari. I think the, the team that everyone not just want, was intrigued to see how they would get on, but I think hoped that they would be able to find improvements significant enough to propel them at least to the top of the midfield. From what we've seen of testing so far, Courtney, do you feel that Ferrari have done enough to convince you that they are going to be at the top of the midfield 
or at least challenging, let's say, McLaren, who are at the top of the midfield at the moment? I think they're going to be improvements um, compared to last season, but then again, that's not very difficult. Um, as I said earlier on, I don't think we're going to know how much improved the engine is until Q3. I think that's when we'll get the first draw indication uh, where they'll be. I think we could well see a battle between them and McLaren battling out for third place. I think that's where I kind of expect them to be this season. But what I found quite interesting is it seemed that Carlos Sainz was struggling with the car a lot, lot more compared to Charles Leclerc. He had a few spins. Yes, it's a new team. You have whole new systems with a new engine and new programs that he has to learn. So for new drivers, it's been particularly tough. But yeah, I think Ferrari are definitely, they should be aiming for the upper midfield. But both their drivers will need to be on their game if they're to beat McLaren at this certain point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of drivers that are changing teams and some are going to adjust better to it than others. Carlos says himself that he's learnt the basics at Ferrari, but there's so much. I think probably more so than anywhere else on the grid to learn in a new car, especially when you're someone that's not really been involved in a team like Ferrari, Carlos Sainz hadn't had the easiest of times. However, he did set Ferrari's fastest time, we should say, a 129.6 on day three on the C4 tyres. So it was about um, six tenths off of Max Verstappen's ultimate time on day three as well. They did 404 laps. So a good test uh, in terms of mileage from Ferrari. They got a lot of mileage in, a lot of data uh, from their runs. Uh, they had that issue in the morning on day one where Charles Leclerc had that engine issue towards the end of the session. But then... It wasn't a big deal. For all the noises that are coming out of Ferrari from everyone you speak to are positive. Now, mm, we, don't, we don't know if that's a bit of a bluff and that they know the truth and they're not as impressed. But from what they've told us regarding the engine, they're very happy with the engine. They did the runs in the dynos and it meets in their expectations. Um, we don't really know how much of a performance boost they've got. Some people saying 20 horsepower. Other sources are saying as much as 40. I mean, if it's the latter, that's huge. We never really found out how good this engine improvement is. Because, for example, Ferrari were doing long run pace and short runs. And there was a stint on day three that Charles Leclerc was pounding around the Ferrari. And Kimi Raikkonen was very much close to him. And over the course of the stint, Raikkonen was losing about two tenths of a second a lap to Charles and he was following Charles in dirty air as well for most of it so that would have hindered him and of course uh Raikkonen was on a few laps fresher tyres on the C2 tyres which is what everyone was doing their long runs on now what concerns me about that is if the Ferrari an outright pace with clean air versus the Alfa Romeo in dirty air is only two temps a lap difference between them that's great for Alfa Romeo but not so much for Ferrari yeah. Karen Chanduk on Sky F1 made a really good point. And I think it's worth noting this. Alfa Romeo and Haas, Haas, we're not sure if they're actually using the 2021 engine. We assume that they are, but because of the issues they had where they couldn't get a Ferrari engineer to fire it up properly because of COVID restrictions on travel, we don't know if they're actually using that. We assume that they are, but you know, unless we're told otherwise, just, just assume that they are. Karen Chunduk pointed out that it might be possible that the reason Alfa Romeo are looking in a way, slightly behind Ferrari, or at least on their level, is because perhaps they were instructed by Ferrari as part of their test to turn the engine up to a higher setting um, to test the engine there, whereas Ferrari ran it at a more conservative setting, which might bridge the gap to some degree. And that would make sense, um, given the power team performance that they had last year between 
the Ferrari and Alfa Romeo. But having said that, Sebastian Vettel was struggling with that car was battling Raikkonen and Giovinazzi for a lot of the time last season. I think there was like seven occasions where them two finished next to each other, Vettel and Raikkonen. So I don't want to say that Ferrari are not showing their true pace, but given the noises that we're hearing about the car and given about the engine, it does seem that Ferrari have made a step forward. Is it a big enough step forward to be the best of the rest of midfield or at least challenge for that on a regular basis? I don't know. I think we're just going to have to wait and see. But... Ferrari seem pretty happy with what they've done. And, you know, compared to last year, Ferrari were very downbeat and realistic, saying that they were slow and no one believed them and they turned out to be. So maybe they're right. Maybe they haven't shown their full hand yet and they will turn out to be quicker in the first race. Yeah, maybe. You know, when we uh, reacted to the Ferrari, um, the launch of the car, um, we sort of both agreed that there's been a change in narrative at Ferrari. Instead of like making big noises to leave the disappointment, they seem to have a bit more of a humble approach. And maybe their testing program is a sort of what's probably the best way to describe this an indication of how they're sort of going about their business. And it wouldn't surprise me, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Mercedes and sandbagging. It wouldn't surprise me if Ferrari are the biggest sandbaggers on the grid this season. Could well be. Um, I, I mean, as a Ferrari fan, I certainly hope so, um, because I was watching their long run pace and their short runs, trying to do some calculations based on information. Uh, uh, for example, Gary Anderson, former uh, technical designer at Jordan in the 90s, um, he, gave a, he gave a great insight into how the teams, to decipher which teams run certain amounts of fuel loads and everything else, which is a caveat. And of course, engine power as well. All the teams run relatively different fuel loads to get a rough idea as to where they are performance wise they're relatively consistent in that regard because it doesn't make sense to run it different one year to another because you just get an uncorrelation of data um and i looked at ferrari and i looked at their long run pace and i felt that it looked good but not outstanding and it looked like it was in the midfield and they'd made progress but not necessarily better than certain selected teams which we'll go through later on um one thing I did notice as well, Ferrari did say that the correlation between the data in the wind tunnel and the data on the track is very, very good. And what I mean by that is Ferrari have had a history of issues with correlation between their wind tunnel and what the car does on the track. So in other words, they give different results. And that's a bad thing because you want to develop your car moving forward and see where you really are pace wise. You want those two pieces of data to be working in tandem with each other and matching up. Ferrari is saying that's what's happening now and they're happy with that. So I, I think we've just got to take the positives from what they're saying and we will find out how good that car really is. Uh, as I said, it didn't look amazingly fantastic. It looked good, but I saw better from other cars from the going around the track. So we'll have to wait and see. I think they're hiding something. This, this is this is just my gut. There's nothing that I've seen to suggest, you know, suggest that mm. is the case. But I I think with the amount of optimism they're around this engine, they didn't want to show their, their car straight away. And I think, as I said, come Q3, I think we could see something in this Ferrari engine that very few people expect. I hope so. I'm not expecting miracles, but I hope that Ferrari are hiding more than others think that they are. And it's not going to be another difficult season like last year. Because, of course, they've made progress, but then everyone else has. So the idea is to make more progress than everyone else to move up the field. But we'll have to wait and see. Um, we mentioned Alfa Romeo. Let's quickly go to them before we talk about Alpine. Um, again, similar to Alfa Tari, did the most laps of testing. 
129.7 by Kimi Raikkonen on day three on the on the C5s. At one point, was the fastest time in testing. Um, overall, I'd say Alfa Romeo, as I said, looked pretty pretty good. Um, I I think Alfa Romeo was showing more of their pace than a lot of the teams were. Probably more than anybody else uh, was showing their true pace. Um, but overall, the car looked pretty good. It handled pretty well. Uh, Raikkonen said he was fairly happy with it. And uh, I don't expect Alfa Romeo to be two temps slower than the Ferrari. I think we should make that point clear. I know I've said that they looked like they were. I don't think they actually are. I think that Ferrari have got more in reserve to bring to the first race. Um, I know people say, why don't teams run their cars to their absolute maximum in test in the in testing? Uh, two reasons for that. One, you don't really need to. So there's no value in that. You might as well just run the cars at a deep, reasonable enough pace and you've got the data there that as long as it matches up it's fine and secondly there's always the risk that you can damage your car more if you're pushing flat out constantly for three days i mean i know these are the best drivers in the world but if they can do it in a 90 minute race on a one lap in qualifying they can very easily do it um over the course of three days when they're running as long as they have i mean look at lewis hamilton um had that incident where he beached his Mercedes on day two of the test. I remember back to the last time he'd done something like that in a Mercedes, and that was uh, his first day of testing at Mercedes. On his first outing, he crashed a car at Jerez in 2013. Um, so it, it can happen to the best of drivers, but with Alfa Romeo, um, they look pretty solid, pretty decent pace, definitely made a step forward this year. I feel that perhaps Alfa Romeo may be the leading team in the C-Class with them, Williams and yes. Haas. Um, will they be close to the midfield? I think they'll be much closer. The new Ferrari engine will certainly help that. But otherwise, a pretty decent test session. Yeah, they can't complain, really. I think, given the size of the team right now, that's probably where they expect to be, um, at the tail end of the midfield. Um, I expect a big improvement from one of the teams that we're yet to mention. So I won't mention that just yet. See, I expect them to be there, thereabouts. They've got a very solid driver, obviously, in Kimi Raikkonen. Big season for Giovinazzi. Um, he needs to do the best he can to keep that seat because there will be a lot of people after it. But, yeah, certainly, um, I expected them to be worse than where they are. I, I expect them to be right towards the bottom. But at this stage, I expect them to be battling with the, the talent of the midfield and... In a chaotic race, um, they could find themselves in some decent point scoring positions. But just this is my perspective. They've gone from being behind where they expect to be from the from the moment the car reveal, and they've exceeded expectations. Even though they're not going to be massively high up the grid, I think they've outperformed where they expected the car to be at the very start. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between being quick and being happy with your test program. And the teams will yeah. have a certain criteria of things that they'll want to test on the car, and things that they expect and things they won't expect. Alfa Romeo, given what we've seen in testing, despite the fact that, yes, at times they look pretty quick, obviously when it all sorts itself out, I don't think Alfa Romeo are going to be the third or fourth fastest team on the grid. But overall, they seemed pretty happy. I think Giovinazzi wasn't overly happy um, with things, but... I would say they look pretty happy with that test. And, and that's always a good sign for Alfa Romeo fans that um, they look like they're going to be much more involved in the midfield battle this season than they were last year. Um, let's move on to Alpine. The big story of Alpine, the return of Fernando Alonso, uh, the two-time Formula One world champion after a two-year sabbatical, which 
I think you and I both said we never expected to be a permanent retirement, but he's back. And I tell you what, Courtney, despite the injuries that Fernando sustained to his jaw, he looked like he never missed a trick, didn't he? Looked like the Fernando of old, absolutely pounding it around the circuit, um, doing a 130.3 on the C4 tyres on day three, 396 laps, very, very good. Yeah, it, it, Fernando Alonso looked pretty handy in the Alpine, it must be said. Yeah, I think the um, the work that he's done in other, um, in other series has certainly kept him fit. And the fact they had an accident training, I think, suggests that he was training hard. Um, he had to. Uh, the, the biggest concern we had for Fernando Alonso was would he come back rusty? And at this point, he seems, as you said, it looks like he's never left. So that's certainly important for Fernando. Um, I think Alpine, I, I didn't really expect much from Alpine. I'm sure you've, you're going to say a few things about the car. But they seemed they seemed fairly comfortable, and I, I expected them to be towards the lower end of the midfield. They've come up with a couple of interesting innovations that, if it all works out, they could see them battling towards maybe like as central as you go, or maybe challenging the guys at the top of the midfield. I've I've found a particular element in that car to be very interesting, and I see you looking at your notes, and I know you can't wait to talk about this. Well, I'm not going to say too much on them because. Um... From what I saw from Alpine, yes, they look good, but not exceptional. It must be said. Mm-hmm. I think you know what we've got to look for in these testings is uh, test sessions, especially so far in the development of these cars now that all of the cars relatively look good, except for one, um, for obvious reasons, um, and not because it's not a good car, but because the standard has moved forward and they've yeah. decided not to move forward with it for obvious reasons. Um, but Alpine, they looked. It was similar to Ferrari. They looked good, but they weren't showing any real signs that they made a massive step forward. They looked like they followed the trend with everybody else in terms of performance. They didn't really look like they made a massive step forward. So, yes, I will say Alpine looked like they'd made a step forward. They looked good, but nothing exceptional. I think Fernando Alonso looked pretty good. The car looked pretty handy, and I don't think they'll be too disappointed. I think they'll be quite reasonably happy with how the test goes, but I think compared to everyone else, they were probably hoping for a bit more. Um, one thing I did notice on the car, a lot of people were talking about, was the size of the airbox. I there mean, it is. <laughs> damn, she thick. Like, you know, that, wow. <laughs> that airbox. It reminds um, me of, like, the 70s. The 70s era car, didn't it? It looked like, like the, the airbox looks like, reminds me of the James Hunt, Nicky Lauderman era. Yeah, very reminiscent of that. Um, but Renault, the Renault cars in the past ne- were quite big with the airbox intake, which I never really noticed it that much. I suppose to change the livery kind of, uh, it doesn't mask that in the same way that it used to. But yeah, very big on the calling. Um, but it kind of looks quite cool. Uh, as I said, kind of retro. I like that. Um, but if it does the job, then it doesn't really matter. But as I said, the, the bodywork on the on the rest of the car does seem to reflect the trend that everyone else is going down. So clearly a lot of the calling is focused in that area rather than where you'd expect it to be. But yeah, you know, I don't think Alpine can be too disappointed with the test. It's a fabulous looking car. I'm really looking forward to seeing Alonso. I like the fact that he is looks like he hasn't been away from Formula One. Um, so it'd be really good to see how he gets on. Um, let's talk about Williams, George Russell, Nicholas Latifi, and Roy Nassani all had a day each in the car. Um, speaking of Roy Nassani, obviously, you know, there is test and reserve driver doing practice. Well, not reserve drivers, a test driver doing practice sessions because he hasn't got his full super license yet. So he can only partake in testing and FP uh, free practice sessions and you can't actually compete in a full race or qualifying because of that because of the 
the financial nature that Williams are still currently in, despite the new investment, do you feel that that day of running that Roy Massani did will impact on the performances of George Russell and Nicholas Latifi as they had to give up half a day of their own running time each? Or do you feel that, you know, it's not really going to be much of an issue for them to having spent, well, George two years and Nicholas Latifi already one year in a car that's an evolution in a way from last year's one. Do you feel that's going to be a big problem for them or do you think they'll be fine? I kind of have mixed opinions on it because Lewis Hamilton in particular has been quite vocal saying that he doesn't enjoy testing and he doesn't seem to find it very beneficial. But at the same time, this this season is exceptional given the little amount of running that these cars can do. And they gave up a third of their running to a test driver. Yes, all the data is valuable to the team, but surely given like the very little amount of time that they have, surely it must be some kind of benefit for the two drivers to have a day and a half each instead of just a one. I don't know. I'm not I'm not a I'm not a Williams uh, I'm not a part of the management of Williams. This isn't my job. They get paid a lot of money to do it. I don't know, given the circumstances this season, I don't know. It, it, it didn't seem like the wisest move. Yeah, and I mean, the, the delivery is definitely growing on me. I mean, I liked it before and it looks really cool on track. I think a lot of people shared that uh, opinion as well, that yeah. probably were a little bit apprehensive when it was first and all. And I always say they look better on track than they do in the showroom anyway. Um, unless you're playing Gran Turismo, then it's a completely different concept altogether. Um, but the car itself looked good. Definitely a big step forward for Williams. Uh, it it was very peaky in performance. It had moments when it was very very good, and moments where it was okay. I mean, George Russell on the uh, uh, George Russell on day three, he had the car the whole day. Day three, he did a lot of running, well over a hundred laps. Uh, I think he did like nearly 150 laps on his own. I have to have a look, but huge amount of laps from George. Yeah, huge effort from him, um, getting as much running he had to. As I said, he lost that extra time of running, so he had one day in the car. And did a 130.1, which I think was at one point six, fifth or sixth fastest overall, um, considering the amount of running he had was brilliant. And he did that on the C5 tyres. So Williams this season, of course, is about upgrading from last season. They want to be more involved in a midfield battle. I feel like they're closer, but I think once again, it's going to be them and Alfa Romeo for the best of the yes, C class. I don't think they're going to have to worry about Haas at all. I don't think anyone's going to have to worry about them. But it is an improvement for Williams. They'll be pretty happy with what they had to do in the test. They didn't really have any major issues. The car looks good. The guys, the drivers look pretty happy with it. So we'll have to wait and see how that works out. I mean, I know in George's mind, he will want to impress Mercedes and we'll need a car that's better to help him do that. I think this car definitely is a step in the right direction. But I'm not sure how much they would have closed on the other teams to really feel that they're going to be that much better than they were last year. We'll have to wait and see. Moving on to the final team now, we'll be very quick with this one. Haas running a 2020 car with 2021 parts on it to make it legal to run, running a test which wasn't really about testing the car on the new parts. There were a few little new bits on it, but it was mostly just a session where they were giving their driver, their rookie drivers as much running time as possible to get used to the car. Yeah, um, even then it just seemed that one of their drivers found a way to make the headlines. Um I don't know. It's, it's uh, we, we we spoke about Huss before and I gave my opinion, so I'm not going to bore the audience with it all over again. But I don't know. It, it just it just seemed to sum up where Huss are as a team are as a team at the moment. And at this point, for me, they just seem rock bottom. I think there's no other way to put it. 
Yeah. I mean, we don't even know if they're running the 2021 Ferrari engine. I already mentioned the issues that they had with getting that put in the car because of COVID travel restrictions. Um, they read, they did 394 days of testing between Mazepin and Mick Schumacher, of course. Uh, Mazepin was the set the faster time on the 131.5 on the C4 tyres, although the long runs Mick seemed to have a bit of an edge over and Mick was more focused on long runs than short runs. Um, I think Mick was fast, fastest time from Mick was in the 132s, but he wasn't really doing proper short run performances. Um, I mean, this season is going to be a weird one for Mick Schumacher in particular. Uh, I mean, Mazepin's competition is Mick as well. And of course, Mazepin's just better off to get his head down and just drive. I don't think anything else is expected of him to just do that. In Mick's case, there's a lot of expectation on Mick. I think this season in particular is very much going to be a learning one. It's not going to be easy for him, but I think he's going to have to get used to the fact that he's. it's more, interested for, more interesting for him to just learn his trade, learn how an F1 car works, build that experience and know-how up, and then hopefully next season Haas have a much more competitive car. Um, do you feel that because of Haas's current situation, Courtney, where they're prioritising next season rather than, you know, they're just entering for the sake of it, I mean, we know you say teams don't just turn up mm. for the sake of it, but Huss really are. Do you feel that the pressure has been relieved off of Mick Schumacher or do you feel that there will be some level of expectation on him to perform in this year's car? I think the the bar is so low for Haas and given his teammate, I think, because you've got to remember, they're, they're sort of like the two main sort of categories that as a driver you look at. So it's how you perform compared to the relative performance of the car and then compared to the performance of your teammate. Now, Mick Schumacher, in my opinion, I think he proved to be the better driver already in F2. I think you know, he just has to make sure that he outperforms Mazepin, but personally, I don't think that's going to be too much of an option, uh, too much of a problem for him. And we kind of saw how it benefited George Russell in a strange way, being at the very back of Williams, because when he actually performed well, particularly on the Saturday, he caught the eye. So if Mick, if Mick Schumacher somehow manages to get the car out of, um, out of Q1, then all the headlines are going to be about Mick. Obviously, the, the relation with his dad obviously helps him along the way. Um, but yeah, if he, if he gets two, maybe three good performances out of that car, I, I think he might be looking to make a quick move to another team that's under that Ferrari parachute, let's say. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, Haas fans obviously will have a year of pain to deal with um, considering they did the same thing last year. They rolled out the 2019 car uh, for 2020 and basically, or 2020, you know, they basically had the same car almost for three and a bit years. They would have had the new parts on this car that were developed in 2020, but they couldn't manufacture. So, you know, the car will be better, but compared to the performance of everyone else, they are looking very easily the bottom team on the grid. Um, one incident I did want to talk about that I did notice Um at the very end of testing, there was an incident at turn nine where Kimi Raikkonen was going around very, very slowly. And Carlos Sainz, for some reason, was going very quick and tried to go for a lunge around the inside of Raikkonen. And this was just after testing had finished, but the cameras could still pick it up. So there was a replay of it. And Raikkonen didn't see Sainz coming. He sort of turned in a little bit on him. And Sainz has gone for like a lunge in a race where it's like, oh, it's a bit bold. You don't need to go for it. And they collided a little bit. There wasn't much damage. But... What was interesting after that was like, oh, steady on, lads, it's testing, it's finished, was Raikkonen carried on and then Sainz literally chased after him in the car and they were going at like full speed. It was almost like Sainz had found someone that owed him money or he had serious road rage and he was trying to chase after him like a pursuit. And 
they asked Kimmy, no, no one talked about this. And I mentioned this on the DNF1 Twitter page after the test. I didn't, I'm surprised no one else saw this. And they asked Raikkonen about this. And he said, I had zero idea. Basically, his quote was, I had zero idea that he was there. I guess he was pissed off and tried to play uh, tried to play games. And I'm like, I don't know. I think Sainz was a bit peed off there. And he looked like um, he wasn't happy with Kimmy. Um, that was a really weird one. I don't know if you saw that, Courtney, at the end of testing. Um, at the end of the day, mate, it spices up what is a very, very boring time of the year for the drivers. So, um, I don't know. It's not It's not really like Carlos Sainz to be hot-headed. We didn't really see it much his time at McLaren. Um, mm. he, needs, he needs to make sure that doesn't become an issue at Ferrari because if he, if he starts misbehaving, you're at a team that's been watched by a lot of people. So, it might have just been, you know what, they might have been overtired after a long day of testing. Might put it down to that. Mm. But yeah, said it. You know what gives us something to laugh about, doesn't it? No, absolutely. So um, it was just a really interesting moment. I, I joked that it was the fastest the Ferrari looked in all of testing, the way he was chasing Kimmy down. But then, of course, <laughs> the sense of speed and everything else. That's just how it goes. Um, we're just past, we're passing the hour point on this one now. So let's get into some questions, Courtney. You put out mm-hmm. on the Instagram page to ask some of our followers to give us some questions and basically give our little two cents on some of the questions they had on testing. Yeah, we've got a couple of good ones here. I'm glad they asked them because they fit in perfectly. So first of all, um, George Allen asks, after testing, who do you think will be the biggest surprise package? Oh, did he specify good or bad or just a surprise in general? Surprise package. So that opens up even more for you, mate. It's hard to say who the biggest surprise package will be because testing kind of gives us an indicator as to who we think is going to be good and who we think Mm. is not going to be good. So I suppose based on what we've seen in testing, the surprise package has to be Alpha Tauri. Um, yeah. Given that, you know, teams can bluff their way through pe- uh, testing. Mercedes have done it for years with the sandbagging. Uh, Ferrari have usually done it the other way around. I mean, Ferrari naturally used to run a very light car and to get the headline times and then they turn up at the start of the season and then they know. I mean, do you remember 2019? We all thought Ferrari was going to be like half yeah. a second quicker than everyone else. Half and then second, Melbourne, yeah. they got the, they got the strategy. Or they got Sorry, not the strategy. They got the setup absolutely wrong and they were nowhere. And then a week later, they should have won in Bahrain or won two. And then that didn't happen because of Leclerc's engine issue and Vettel doing his big Pete Burns impression, spinning around um, the original Spinella, if you like. Um, well, actually, it wasn't. There were several before that. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I peed off a Ferrari fan on Twitter by doing that as a joke when Carlos Sainz <laughs> did that. I wrote, the, you know, 20, yeah, Spinala tradition carries on a Ferrari. He wasn't happy. I'm a Ferrari fan too. Like, so you got to laugh at these things like that. Um, the legacy lives on nonetheless. But yeah, Alpha Tauri looked like the, the team that I think will surprise us this season in a good way, given, you know, they look mm. very good. The test was good. The car looks quick and the drivers are very, very good. So uh, what about you, Courtney? You know what? I'm going to uh, chuck McLaren into this. So, given everything that we've seen over not only testing but in a in the postseason, I've, I I'm expecting big things for them. I'm not expecting them to be the top team, but I'm expecting them to get some results that nobody expects. Nobody would have dreamed of them getting this time last year. You know, mm. I really expect them to do well. I was I was chatting to a few McLaren fans on Twitter about this and I was talking up McLaren and they seemed pretty happy about what was going on and they were asking me about this and I remember thinking about the Josh Kroenke meme um, and for those who don't know Josh Kroenke he's, he's the son of Stan Kroenke the owner of Arsenal Football Club and there's a 
picture of him from an interview where he talks about Arsenal's transfer activities. And he just says, one thing I will say is be excited, very excited. And I thought that would be perfect. We just, you just Photoshop Zach Brown's face in front of Josh's and you'd say the same thing to McLaren. And I think they should be very excited by this car and what they could do this season. I don't think you're exaggerating their prospects this season. We'll get into that in a bit. Um, so yeah, I think I'll go Alpha Tower, you go McLaren. Um, so what were the mm-hmm. other questions? So we've got one more question here from uh, Vulcan Motorsport. Do check out his, um, his uh, channel. That's we do love video editing. We do love Vulcan's really? content. Really good stuff. So definitely check him and out. He, he does. He's, all, he's always interactive with us. And he's given us another good question. I think this is really relevant as well, given how very little testing we've got. And I think this element would have gone missing. So he's asked us, how might re- uh, reliability be a factor given that we have so many races this season? Well, last season, as we know, I think the teams are meant to run seven engines. Sorry, seven races, but not seven engines. Um, they are only allowed engine parts. Like, I think most of the parts are three parts and they get two, I think, on the turbo and that. I have to remind myself of this every year because I always forget. But basically, it's about three of most of the internal combustion engine parts and two of some others. And that doesn't include practice or anything like that. So obviously, they're spared from that plight. Um, because if they if they included practice, then teams just wouldn't bother just to save the engine. So on average, most of the engine parts are going to last about seven races. Last year, we didn't have an issue with that because we had less races. So they weren't reducing the number of parts. This season, it could be an issue. However, these, t- these cars have had, these engines have been developed for about seven or eight years now. And they're going to continue onwards from 2022 onwards where the big, regulation change where the engine freeze will come in place at the end of this season and i'd say the engines are almost bulletproof in some regard there are issues but most of the issues that can be fixed and resolved anyway i remember pierre gasly had that huge fire in um portimao and they were able to recover most of the engine parts from that anyway so it wasn't really a detriment to him so in terms of reliability i would say the reliabilities of the car look pretty good i know you had a few gearbox issues, Aston Martin, Ferrari had an issue, Mercedes had issues as well. But that's what testing is for and those little bugs that they'll figure out. So I think overall it will be strenuous and the normal regulations will apply if they have to get new parts. They always seem to and they'll get penalised for it. But I don't think it's going to be that bad. I think teams are going to be okay reliability-wise. I think the team, well, not the team, the manufacturer I'm going to be keeping an eye on the most is Honda. Because yes. if Honda have made a big step forward in terms of raw performance, sometimes that comes at a risk to reliability. So if we've got this many races and Red Bull are just ahead of Mercedes in terms of raw pace, and we get to the point where, shall we say, Lewis and Max are close in the championship, the reliability of this Honda engine could decipher who wins this championship. So I think mm. given the amount of races that we have, this could be something that goes to Mercedes' um, advantage if they're just behind Red Bull. Absolutely valid point. They've pushed forward this engine program by year and they'll still be working on the 2022 engine as well for 20, you know, which would have been, well, well wouldn't, wouldn't have existed normally, but um, they've moved their program forward a year. They've been very aggressive on development. So there could be reliability issues. Nothing we saw from testing pr- showed that. So Red Bull um, and AlphaTauri will be very happy with this Honda engine considering this mm. was the team that had reliability issues when they first come back into Formula One back in 2015 so we'll have to keep an eye on it and if there's anyone out there that doesn't understand the significance of having a reliable engine for a championship ask Lewis Hamilton 
he'll tell you back in 2016 or ask Courtney he'll tell you all about that but um I'd rather not (laughs) (laughs) ask Nico Rosberg I think he'll be happy uh, about that nonetheless uh we we could talk uh, there's a definitely a good topic to talk about Rosberg in the future we'll definitely bring that up Mm. but Vulcan if you are watching this um keep up making a good content we love your stuff and get on the podcast let us know when you're free, mate. You've done your face reveal. Everyone knows what you look like now. So, you know, get on the podcast with us, mate. We'd love to have you on there with us. Anyway, let's go to the final part of this podcast now um, because it's quite a long one, obviously, testing. It was always it's been, been a long. monster. It's it has. Monster. It has. Um, let's get into our final pecking order now. Um, you know, currently no time pressure on this one, but I want mm-hmm. you to go through your top 10, 10 to 1, and then I'll give you mine. Uh, towards the end of this episode so we're basing it at this very point yeah at yes this very point at this point in testing okay. i mean you, yeah. can, you can you can include the usual caveats in your mind about who's hiding what performance mm-hmm. and who's not but at bahrain at the start of the grid who do you think is going to be the worst and then we'll work our way up to who you think at the moment has okay. got the best car i'm gonna go 10th pass hmm and you can Ninth, you, uh, sorry you can give some explanation if you want to i should mention because i'm gonna so yeah, i feel like you should too if yeah. you want to i think i think i think i think has for the various reasons that were raised they're gonna be at the very bottom i think after that alfa romeo mm-hmm. um and i think it's gonna be close i think it's gonna be close between williams and alpha towery i don't Ooh. know I, I think alpha towery have made a step forward i don't know i don't I think Williams could die. I think I think Williams could have something, particularly with George Russell. I I'm, think it could be close between them two. I'm more surprised um, by the Alpha Tauri one. Um, clearly, you and I are going to have a very interesting few differences on this list. But no, I, don't, I, don't, I just got, I just, I just, I just, I don't know. Let's think about Williams this season. I don't know. I, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, I think Alpine will be the solid midfield team. I think maybe they could be. I think there could be the three teams that we could see battling a lot will be Alpha Tauri, Alpine, and Williams. I think we could see a lot of battling going on there. I think what gets interesting for me is, is the the top of the midfield. Um, I, I think Ferrari hiding something. I I reckon Ferrari could well be the fourth. I'm going to say the fourth best team. I think Alpine will be solid midfield. I think Aston Martin would be just beyond Ferrari. Mm-hmm. McLaren third. It pains me to admit this. Mercedes second, Red Bull first. So just to clarify the list uh, for everyone, Haas 10, Alpha Romeo 9, Williams 8, yeah. Alpha Tauri yeah. 7, Alpine 6, Ferrari... Yeah. Uh, sorry, for, for Aston Martin 5, Ferrari 4. Yeah. McLaren three, Red McLaren Bull three. Uh, Mercedes two, and Red two. Bull one. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so I'll, I'll do mine. I'll, I will save the really long explanations on for for most of them. But Haas, obviously, I think everybody and their mothers will pick Haas as tenth at the back. Obvious reasons. Not going to go into why. We know why. Um, ninth. I'm going to go Williams. It's going to be really tight between them and Alfa Romeo, but I'm going to put Williams ninth and Alfa Romeo eighth. I just think the improvements that Ferrari have made, at least from what we've seen from Alfa's perspective, if what Karen Chernock has said is to be believed, that that Ferrari engine has made a big enough step forward to give Alfa an advantage over Williams. Bear in mind, they were quite similar 
pace-wise. And Alpha, I felt, had the edge over them last season in, in ways. Um, I think the big mitigator was George Russell. So I just feel that Alpha will improve more than what Williams would have done. Um, seventh, Alpine. Um, I mean, they look very, very good Alpine, but I just feel that the others have made better steps forward. And they were kind of on the brisk of that part. Anyway, they were going down towards the very end of the season, even though they look pretty good in Ricardo's hands and Ocon and Sakir. It gets really hard to this one because these four teams now, you could really put anywhere. Um, perhaps This high- is what we want. Yeah, this I mean, one, so it's good. Yeah, this midfield battle is really going to be where the action is this season, as well as the top two. I am going to go by what I've seen in testing and not go on the assumption that teams are hiding something and go by this. So sixth place, I believe is Ferrari will be sixth. And wow. the reason, the big reason why I think Ferrari are sixth is I looked at their long run pace based on the C2 tyres and I was trying to use Gary Anderson's fuel model as well and what teams usually run. So Ferrari usually run around 40 to 45 kilos of fuel compared to Mercedes who will run about 60. So um, with that, there's about three tenths of a second per lap for every 10 kilos of fuel. So let's assume a safe number is around half a second difference between Mercedes and Ferrari based on the fuel loads alone, not necessarily the car performance. So Mercedes running that much more fuel, they'll have they'll lose about half a second a lap on ultimate performance to the Ferrari on fuel alone. When it comes to the long runs, Ferrari were lapping around about just ahead of Alpine, but they weren't really showing signs that they were quicker than the other teams ahead of them. They weren't far off, but they looked like they weren't that'd be really disastrous, quite there. Though. It would that'd be. That'd be disastrous for Ferrari. They've made steps forward, but I'm not sure if they're going to be big enough. Again, I might be wrong from all the noises coming out of Ferrari seem to be positive, but we'll have to wait and see how true that actually is. But I'm going to be reserved in this as a Ferrari fan. I think they will be sixth, but it's so close that it could literally change week on week. That's how close this midfield battle is. Fifth place, Aston Martin. I think Aston Martin, I mean, it. it's not a bad car. I think a lot of people have got this weird, wrong idea that because they've had a poor test, on reliability issues and everything else that the car is not good it takes a lot to turn a car from good to bad in a season unless you're ferrari they Mm. seem to be very good at doing that um you can tell i'm a ferrari fan just rant for life any but you know i love the scuderia but with aston martin all the jokes aside about being the pink mercedes last year the development on that they have gone their own way in certain elements but there are some still a lot of similarities to the direction that mercedes have gone so with that in that level of company i do think that aston martin will have a pretty decent car and will be challenging again as racing point did i don't think aston martin are as good as some people thought they were going to be i think people thought they were going to be the third best team as they thought racing point were going to show from last season from the pace they show so i'm going to put them fifth um again going on the long run pace if you take fuel loads expected fuel loads and other things into account um, they look like they could be fifth. Fourth place, my surprise, Alpha Tauri. I think Alpha Tauri has shown a lot in preseason testing. On the long run paces, when Pierre Gasly and Charles Leclerc were going round, the Alpha Tauri was consistently faster than the Ferrari, a good few tenths of a second at least over a lap faster than the Ferrari. So, and with Nuki Sonoda's hands, it looked very quick in short runs as well. So, with that, I think Alpha Tauri are, not far, are faster than Ferrari. And Aston Martin, I think they've made a huge step forward 
in their car. And I think they're very, very good. So I'm going to go with them in fourth. Uh, McLaren, third. I think McLaren looked the best in the midfield. Um, it's not going to be as comfortable as I thought it was after day one. I think the other teams have closed that or looked like they're a lot closer than I thought they were going to be. But I would say to McLaren fans, be very excited. I think they look very good. The driver lineup is good. I think it's a slight upgrade on last year with Ricardo being slightly better than Sainz at this point in his career. Obviously, Sainz is five years younger than Daniel, so he has the time to make that up. And I think the dynamic between Lando and Sainz, and Martin Brundle made this point, and I agree with him, that it was a bit childish at times, like in a good way, like whimsical, fun, immature, informal fun. I think both Lando in particular and Sainz will benefit from having a more professional relationship because Daniel Ricciardo, lovable guy, always has fun, always smiling, but when he's in the car, business, all about business. And you see that. And that's why he's so good. So I don't think Lando can have the same relationship with that. They'll still have fun out the car, but when they're in the car, got to be more serious. And I think that's going to be good for Lando Norris in particular. Ricardo already looks like he's comfortable in that car. I think he could very well win a race this season. So I'm, I'm excited about McLaren. I think this could be a very good year for them. I'll put them comfortably in third place. And then the final two. There is literally in my mind, I've been mulling over this for a long time since we'll say a long time, I've been running over it for a lot since the end of testing. I still cannot come up with a definitive answer as to who I think will definitely be the team to beat. However, I'm going to go by what I've seen. I'm going to put Mercedes second. And at the very least, if Mercedes are the best team, Red Bull are going to be very, very close. Close enough where Max Verstappen can make the difference as a driver. We always talk about... Um, when, uh, for example, when Ferrari and Mercedes were duking it out in 2018 and there were some tracks Mercedes were better than Ferrari, others Ferrari were better than Mercedes, almost in equal measure. And it was Vettel versus Hamilton. And in the end, Hamilton made the difference more than Vettel did for Ferrari when the chips were down. And that's what ultimately won the title for Lewis, where Vettel capitulated for Ferrari at the same time. I feel Max is good enough to make the difference in this car. Having said that, The Red Bull looks incredibly mighty. They seem to have fixed a lot of their handling issues. The engine sounds pretty good. It seems pretty fast. The the short run pace is incredibly good from Red Bull. The long run pace is equally impressive. And I think yesterday convinced me more than not that Red Bull do look like they are the team to beat. But if they are, it's so, so minimal. It could be either one of them at this point. So I'm going to confirm the list. Haas 10th, uh, Williams 9th, Alfa Romeo 8th, Alpine 7th, midfield Ferrari 6, Aston Martin 5, Alfa Tauri 4, McLaren 3, but any of those could be interchangeable from what we see. And then Mercedes 2 and Red Bull as the leading team at this point. But there's so much that, you know, so many mitigating factors, so many caveats, stuff that we won't have seen that could really change the order. But uh, I think, you know, let us know what you guys think about this as well. What are your predicted orders? Do you agree with our lists in particular? Or do you feel that we are absolutely clueless and haven't got a clue? At this point, who does? Everyone comes up with different ideas. it's true, exactly. It's true. Everyone comes up with different ideas as to where they think everybody is in the pecking order. But who really knows? Honestly, the stopwatch will tell us all in Bahrain. And uh, unless there's anything you wanted to add to that, Courtney, I think it's probably a good time to wrap this up, really. 
Yeah, I think after the monster episode we produced it, I think we've probably had to uh, we've said everything we need to say tonight, mate. Uh, testing is such a big topic, but I'm glad that we've only it been a- we've been able to cover it all in one episode rather than last year when we had to do. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, guys, let us know what you think. Do you agree with our list? Do you agree or disagree? Let us know what you think. And also, as well, don't forget to follow us on social media. As you can see, the handles below. And until then, guys, check the Twitter out. Check yes. the Twitter out. Honestly, and good Instagram. stuff on there. Good stuff. And Instagram, we do a lot of good work on there as well, Courtney. But uh, Thank you, you know. I digress. If you enjoyed the video, give it a like and subscribe to the channel as well. And thank you so much, one and all, for tuning in. Stay safe. And we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Take care. See you soon. Podcast Network.